and welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is Kev Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, J.G. McQuarrie. Say hi, J.G. Hey there, Kev. How's life? Life's pretty good. feel like I'm hitting a new milestone in my life. feel like Doctor Who they're about to discuss is hitting a milestone as well. Yes, I think that sounds, uh, sounds like it's about right. So um, this week, we are going to be dipping into 100. Now, it's a cunning, subtle, and devious title. It may be hard to work out from that title, but it turns out it's actually the 100th release that Big Finish have ever put out in the Doctor Who main range. Amazing, right? But for such a momentous occasion, there is no possible way we could restrict our discussion to just the two of us, which means we have a returning guest star in the shape of Anthony Strand. Say hello, Anthony. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for having me back again, gang. You are more than welcome. How are you doing this week? I'm doing very well. Very happy to hear it, and I hope you're looking forward to delving into 100. Now, um, Kev, let's let's start at the beginning, shall we? And um, do you want to give us a summary for the first story in the box set? Sure. Our first story, 100 BC, has the Sixth Doctor and Evelyn, our stars for all four stories, uh, arrive in Rome as they come to witness the birth of Julius Caesar. Unfortunately, they wind up mixing up with his parents and possibly uh, interfering with his conception. And when Julius turns out to be Julia, the Doctor and Evelyn tried to travel back in time and set things right, but it turns out to be a big mix-up. The Doctor went backwards in time, and while and the birth of Julia was in fact a sister of Julius, not replacing Julius, and... Uh, that, that's pretty much the resolution to it. I guess important also is that Evelyn is trying to keep this mix-up as is because she believes a world with women leaders might be better. And that sort of forms the backbone of debate between the two throughout the story. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, um, Anthony, let's start with you. Um, how did you find the first story in this collection? I love it. It's it's very silly. It's like It might be a little bit of a cheat to have Evelyn who... I mean, I know that ancient Rome isn't her... Uh, main area of expertise, but she's a history professor. Like she should know that Julius Caesar had a sister named Julia, right? Like it's a little bit of a cheat, I think, but it doesn't matter because it's so much fun. All the scenes with her and the doctor, just like bickering and trying to foil each other's plans and the uh, increasing exasperation of, of um, Gaius Julius Caesar and Aurelia, the the parents um, who just kind of, are so fed up with the existence of the doctor and Evelyn, which I think is very funny. So it's a very funny story, not one that you want to think about too hard because it's a bunch of nonsense, but funny nonsense. So I'm okay with it. Fantastic. Yes. I think that's a, a good place to start. Um, Kev, how did you find it? Agree wholeheartedly on that funny nonsense uh, summary of the story. This comes from writer Jacqueline Rayner. I think she is so good at that idea of funny nonsense. I mean, all throughout her work for Big Finish, that sort of runs through it. And yeah, I think she's also really good at narrowing in on these sort of doctor-companion relationships. And I think the relationship she has between the doctor and Evelyn and this is so strong and so supportive, even when they're tricking each other. It's just such a fun dynamic that she digs into really well. And I think 100 BC, I mean, it's all about that dynamic more than it is about anything else. So... I think it's such a good job highlighting that, and it's a good way to kick off the box set, since every, all these stories will feature them and sort of be about their relationship. Right. Well, and Jack Rayner uh, created Evelyn. She wrote the Marion Conspiracy, so it's oh, yeah. a return. Yeah, it's and th- it was Marion Conspiracy, Doctor Who, and the Pirates, and this are the three times she ever wrote the character. 
So it's her. It's actually her farewell to Evelyn as well, which is kind of fun. Well, you can't say that she's got a, a bad handle on her own character because she obviously doesn't. I, I think one of the things which is most obvious about this such story is just how confident it is. It is doing silly nonsense, but it's doing it with such panache. And that's like we've often been quite criti- uh, quite critical of uh, big Finnish comedies on this podcast uh, because most of them aren't very funny. But this this is a nice exception. It, it, it's nice to have that that confidence. It's got a bit of swagger about it, and and yeah, it is silly. It, it's a bit daft. And Anthony, you're quite right. Where it's a bit of a stretch that maybe Evelyn wouldn't know that there was a, a Julia as well as a Julius. Um, but you know, it's fine. The story can get away with it, and I I just I I I've even. Although there's a couple of moments, I think the comedy is slightly overextended. I, I think there's more than enough kind of confidence and, and sort of verve about the whole production to get to get around a couple of sort of very minor kind of bumps. Yeah, and I think, yeah, that comedy, like I said, is very successful. I think all the sort of farce playing out between the Doctor and even encountering uh, Gaius, Julius, and Aurelia is very funny. I think all of that works so well, and especially comes clear that once you realize that the birthday sort of witness happens before the main action, then that makes all the reactions even funnier. And that twist really does put an extra step into it. And yeah, just like the whole dinner scene is just very, it's just a good time. It's a really well-written scene. Yes. Well, including the doc, the meal that the doctor prepared, Evelyn uh, coming up with all of these reasons why all these food items are not aphrodisiacs, but will make you gassy or make you, you know, like ruin the mood or whatever. It's so much, it's, it's, I keep saying the same thing, I guess, but it's so, I laugh every time, heard this story a few times and just the way that Evelyn is so like just coming in, act, she she's acting as though she's going to save them from having a terrible time, you know? Just that confidence is a delight. And what's more, it, all that confidence is really anchored around that that sort of central relationship. So we've had more than enough time with Evelyn and the Doctor to to, to know how how solid that central relationship is. Because I think um, I think particularly the conflict um, that plays out and and the idea that um, Evelyn really wants to change history so that the women are in charge rather than men is. It's definitely not something that you could pull off with every companion. Um, but, you know, it, I, like, I don't think you could do it with Mel. I don't think you could do it with Perry. I, I just don't think it would have the same resonance. It, it needs a character with Evelyn's kind of age, uh, her knowledge, her, her sort of the fact that she's, you know, she's a history professor, you know, all this kind of stuff. It gives that character enough weight that the kind of, the sort of arguments which would just evaporate into sort of, cotton wool if it, if it was being made by, by Perry or Mel. Even even Big Finish improved Perry and Mel. I, I, I just can't see it working with it. Whereas here, yeah, that the solidity to this relationship and the fact that they have that kind of, it's not exactly an equal relationship in terms of their intellect, but there's, but they're, you know, they're in the same neck of the woods. And it, it, it makes that aspect of it land incredibly well. It's very satisfying. I think also Evelyn is would be the one who's like more likely to like take the charge up in trying to change history more than any other companion. Not that any other companion is quite submissive to the doctor, but she's one who's like definitely uh, less respectful of the doctor in a good way, especially here. It's just, they're the only ones who feel like not the only ones, but 
they're on equal footing in a way that many other companions aren't with the Doctor, in terms of temperament, if not in terms of like worldly knowledge or Time Lord powers or whatever. For sure. Well, and I think it's also, in some ways, Evelyn is uh, reminiscent of Barbara, you know, the first Doctor companion from TV, mm-hmm. who was also a history teacher. And, um, and this source story feels like a much more lighthearted version of the Aztecs in, in a certain yeah. way. You know, where, where Barbara decided that she was going to end human sacrifice. Um, you know, a, another, another uh, history teacher who wanted to change the past for the better. And that one, like, you knew, you knew also that it wasn't going to happen. But here, you know it's not going to happen because we're not going to learn about Julius Caesar, you know, or whatever. Or whatever. I mean, we, we all know that that's not the famous one. But then it turns out that they couldn't have changed it anyway. And Julius Caesar is also real. So like all of her effects are, are nothing. It's it like that. The, the echoes of the Aztecs make it even funnier to me. How silly this one is, I guess. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a fair point. And I, I think the way that we also get treated to history here, because this, this sort of what's right up to the line of being a celebrity historical, but it's, it's sort of absolutely not because um, with the best wall in the world, most people aren't really going to know anything about, you know, Julius Caesar's parents. And that kind of mirrors the Aztecs as well, where we, we're not, we're, we're visiting history, but it's not an excuse to bump into, oh, here's William Churchill, uh, or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, and and so, you know, it's it's one of those occasions where we, we actually do get to have a bit of a ramble around and we get some, some very small kind of offhanded details about the fact that, you know, it smells much worse than, than, than uh, Evelyn would have expected. And just those, those kind of little drops of, of, of sort of historical detail that stop it all just being a, you know, a terribly polite costume drama or whatever. Um, it all kind of enhances that. And I, no, I agree. I think, I think this, this, this does bear kind of a, a sort of comedy, a comedy angle to, uh, the Aztecs sort of tragedy. So two sides of the same coin. Um, one thing that I think is really funny here too, that we, that we didn't talk about is when the doctor says, if music be the food of love, and then he's going to play a concert for, for Julius Caesar's parents, he just starts playing green sleeves, like of, of all things. And I don't know why, but that makes me laugh. It's a very sixth doctor choice. I feel. For sure. For sure. Yeah, definitely. I think that wraps up our discussion of hundred BC and moves on to my own private Wolfgang. Uh, since I'm the one talking right now, I'll throw it to myself. Uh, my own private Wolfgang has the Sixth Doctor and Evelyn uh, land in Vienna, uh, 1856, where a still-alive Wolfgang Mozart is making music. And even more confusing, the Doctor and Evelyn accept this as reality. Apparently, Wolfgang in the Doctor Who universe is immortal. Edit! Why did I say Wolfgang? Apparently, Mozart in the Doctor Who universe is immortal and would produce music all throughout his very long life, including scores for remakes of movies centuries in the future. This is because Mozart himself, rather a clone of Mozart, traveled back in time and to make Mozart immortal so his music would have less meaning, so clones of Mozart would not be made because these clones of Mozart are horribly abused, and to prevent this, another Mozart has gone back in time, and the Doctor and Evelyn wind up going back in time to prevent this, bringing all the Mozarts with them. And in the end, Mozart dies a young man, refusing the clone future Mozart's offer to become immortal. And thus, history is set the way we know it, which is how the Doctor and Evelyn changed it. Whew. 
Yeah, well, good, good work. Yeah, well that's the best that's I can do. Not, it's, it's not the easiest story in the world to summarize. I'm going to take this one first because I didn't last time. So, um, yeah, this is, um, I think I'm right in saying, this is the last time that Rob Sherman wrote for Big Finish, right? Last time wrote for Big Finish. Last time, this is, as far as I can tell, clicking through his wiki page, the second to last short story of his that was published. And the other one being in a Martha Jones anthology that was published about a year later. Who knows which was written first, given production times and things like that. But this is definitely... That's just that's just a story, though, right? Yeah, like, it's a, like a that's short... a prose story, correct? A short yeah. prose story, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's, the, it's the last time he's written for, for Big Finish, yes. despite our despite our direct entreaties to tell that, you know, we've we've literally said to his face, look, yeah. please write for them again. <laughs> we really, we, 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 we really <laughs> like that. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a hell of a story to go out on. Yeah. It's, I, I, I don't know that there's like a particularly uh, typical Rob Sherman style, um, but whatever it is, it's not this. And I don't mean that as a criticism. I kind of mean it as a compliment. It, the, whatever I was expecting from, from Rob Sherman, you never quite get that. And like, like just the, the sheer difficulty in trying to sort of summarize what is, you know, as if this is a very sharp play. Um, and just trying to get all the details in about all the different Mozarts, their impact, and why why he's relevant, and all this kind of stuff. And and also try to be humorous, also try to be, you know, kind of inventive and twisted. It, there's so much packed in to this one story so i think if i think if if, if rob Sherman does kind of have that one defining style i think just sort of how much he can pack into a very very short space of time is 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 maybe that defining feature and oh boy does he pack it in here i mean i think hard to summarize and packed in are the rob Sherman hallmarks even you can't find any others <laughs> right. at least those two will always be true and yeah it's such a wonderfully dense story i think there, like I said, there's so many different incarnation of Mozart's going on, so many different ideas at play here, but all of them have like the right time to breathe, the right amount of information given. It's all very well balanced, and so everything, nothing's too confusing, nothing's too compact. Everything is given the right amount of comic potential to really hit the marks, as it were. Yeah, I agree. Well, and I think in addition to Shearman, a lot of credit has to go to John Sessions, who is the only other actor besides Colin Baker and Maggie Staples here. He plays all of the Mozarts. He plays actual Mozart and all of the clones and all of the, like he plays every other character, which is many. And he does such a good job of differentiating between them that it never feels like a three person cast. I, I don't think. Are, are you guys sort of aware of John Sessions? Have you, have you sort of ever heard of him before, before this? No, I don't know him. Okay. No, I, I'm, I'm not particularly surprised. <laughs> okay. All right. So yeah, I'm looking at, his credits and the one place I know I've seen him, even though I didn't recognize at the time, is my parents would show me uh, the British Who's line. Yeah, that's 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 what he's best known for. Oh, he did like, okay. like ten or fifteen seasons or something. He was on that show forever. Um, but okay, yeah, that that, it, it's exactly that kind of flexibility, the the ability to kind of throw himself. I mean, he's done proper theatre. He's done Shakespeare. He's done you know whatever. Um, I think he, I want to say he was in something like Death Comes to Time or Scream of the Shalker or one of those ones. I can't remember off the top of my head now. But he's done all that kind of stuff, and so he's kind of like he's a a, a perfect person to get in to try and deliver on all these increasingly ridiculous Mozarts and increasingly ridiculous, oh, and the devil also. Um, and, you know, all this <laughs> right. you know, you couldn't ask for anybody else to kind of do that role. And he, he does land it incredibly well. Uh, the Doctor Who credit that he, I can find, at least right now, is that he was Gus in Mummy on the Orient Express, 
the evil AI. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Of course. Oh, cool. Yeah. Great. Um, yeah. No. So yeah, I didn't know him, but he's very impressive here. And uh, again, a lot of the jokes, a lot of the pacing, I feel like land so well because of him too. Like it's it. I mean, not to take anything away from our stars who are reliably great, of course, but that performance, like this, this episode would not work without that central performance. So hats off to him. Yeah, absolutely. And I think he is so funny um, playing all the different incarnations of the characters and talking to himself like that. I think like the desperation in this sort of clone master is sort of explaining his like sort of plight. Um, but then like being a snap out of it and sort of talking about the washing is very funny. <laughs> right. And that's a funny idea that you, that people would buy these clones of celebrities to be their like house servants, basically like that, that yeah. alone is a funny idea. And like that, that could be a doctor who story, <laughs> you know? And also in the very Sherman way, very horrifying when you think about it. <laughs> that's a very sure. good well, trademark. Did, did either of you listen to the, um, behind the scenes featurette on this one? I uh, know. I can't say I have. I don't think I've. Cause Sh- yeah. Cause Shearman talks about how if he'd had more than an episode, it would have become dark and horrifying because it would be about Mozart hopping through time, using a chainsaw, killing all these clones. <laughs> so, oh yeah. That sounds like, that sounds like Rob Shearman. Yeah. For sure. it does, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's definitely another one of those plays. That it, it's, it, it's really, walk doing a high wire act here because it's it's another one again of obviously we only have sort of three central performers here um and it's definitely one where if any part of this is out of place the whole edifice is going to come crashing down whilst that was also true of 100 as well uh because it was a little bit more in terms of character in terms of performers uh, it, it never felt quite so high wire but here it's really everything is so dependent on not just just tipping over and i say i think one foot out of place it would have been you know pulling one brick out the wall and the whole thing falls down so it's a real achievement from from everyone involved in this that that it's able to to land it and it doesn't i don't think it completely avoids the horror of what's going on here i mean it's very clear that you know that's that that the the way these sort of clones are being treated is is you know genuinely horrific it's not just that they get stuck doing a week's worth of, of washing up although that is bad enough in its own right. I am not. I am not in any way want to diminish the horror of having to do a week's uh, washing up. But it, it's definitely one that um, you know it it, it it touches on it just enough for it to add a little bit of depth to the play, but not so much that it kind of drowns out everything else. Because if it was too heavy handed, it would it would just it would crush the comedy beneath it. But it it's just that that perfect line that's walked. Uh, I got to think another thing that is very delicate to pull off is uh, this idea of war- the Doctor Universe being different from ours until the Doctor changes something. It's not unique to the story, but I think it's always fascinating when that happens. And I think this is especially sort of bold to sort of have the Doctor in Evelyn's exposition adjust us to a universe where Mozart is not regarded as a genius in uh, their time. Right. All that, all that talk about like his greatest hit CDs being in the bargain bin or whatever up front. It's, it's, it's so efficient too. Like, it's just a few lines about how like Mozart is a hack. Everybody knows he's a hack. Evelyn would rather go to any other concert than see Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And they don't dwell on it. They just establish it and move on to the story. It's, it's great. Well, no. And also I like that they do a a call forward in 100 BC. 
oh, yeah. when the doctor says they can't change history, Evelyn says, what about Mozart? He was, you know, whatever, you know, whatever. No, nobody knew him except for as a nostalgia actor, whatever the line is before, before we fixed it or whatever, you know, like I yeah. like that in that play that we hear first, they tease this one. I, ah. It's fun. Do they mention that ordering in the behind the scenes? Because I do wonder if there were, there was a conscious decision to make them out of order, and if maybe they're written to go in the other order, or if or, yeah, I don't know. They don't they, yeah. they don't mention it. All they ones. they just kind of take them one at a time. In that, it's just like you know seven minutes on each one or whatever. Okay. Full full, full confession because my um, audio playback choice medium of choice um, was was uh, having a bad day. I actually ended up listening to these out of sequence. So this this was actually the 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 third one I heard. The order that I ended up um, listening to them in was um, bedtime story, uh, 100 BC, my own private Wolfgang, and then 100 Days of the Doctor. Um, so I I I didn't notice the reference when I was listening to it. Um, but for what it's worth, it it worked when they were shuffled around in a different order, purely thanks to the fault of my uh, my technology my technology. So uh, yeah, <laughs> sure. Uh, at least you still had the best for last. Oh, don't say that. <laughs> uh, I think one final note I have is. I think it's good to sort of bring it back to sort of Rob Sherman's career. Like we're saying, this is his final story. And you were lamenting earlier that it's a shame that it's his final story. And of course, I agree. But at the same time, there's a nice symbolism in a story about how awful it is to keep going until you run out of ideas and then go past that. How the joys of dying young seems to be the moral of this story. And so there's just a symbolic beauty to this being one of, if not his last written Doctor Who story. Yeah, although it it is, I mean, I agree with that, but it is pretty ironic now, you know, 12 more years later, when Big Finish is putting out 100 plus Doctor Who stories a year, to hear the lines about like, well, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's always going to be fans, but they never know when enough's enough or whatever, Mm -hmm. which like was a joke at the time. But then Big Finish has just cranked out so many Doctor Who plays in the years since that it's the joke has gotten like... That joke has curdled a bit, maybe. Let's say that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, that's a perfectly valid. But I agree with both of you. I think I think actually that that's symbolism there. I think that's a really nice point, Kev. But yeah, um, Anthony, you're absolutely right as well. It's it's it's. I mean, I, I, you can't say that they put out too much Doctor Who because who am I to judge what too much Doctor Who is? <laughs> right, but also, right. I mean, but also, they put out too much Doctor Who. There's only so much, you know, you know, you know, sometimes scarcity isn't necessarily a bad thing. And of course, this this ends on that immediate smash cut. Um, you know, so this isn't even given the finality of a kind of like a normal ending and then into the title sequence. It, it, it ends on that, well, you know, uh, that joke about... Um, how, oh, you know, we're just tearing the last few pages out. Would that make any difference? And then it just cuts to silence. Oh, that's so yeah. funny. Mm-hmm. Do you think that works? I'm, I'm really in two minds about it because I, li- I, I really like the idea and I kind of, I do admire the audacity of it. But at the same time, I, I mean, I, I was I was driving at the time and I think I, I think I rolled my eyes hard enough to see the car behind me. It was just, <laughs> you know, it was... I don't know. I I I can't. I just can't decide whether I really like that or not. It is. It is. It's audacious, but it's also unbelievably cheesy. It's a lot cuter than the other jokes in the story. I think it sort of stands out because of that. Yeah. Yes, that's that's probably fair. Yeah, fair enough. I I think it wouldn't work. I wouldn't want a a two hour story that ended like that. 
but for this, you know, 30 minutes, very silly anyway, I think it, I think it works fine. You know, I, I think even if it was the last one of the four, it, I would like it less, but instead we roll into bedtime story, you know, and it's like, haha, okay, let's do something serious, you know, kind of. Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree with that. And I think that probably gives us the sort of perfect rollover into uh, bedtime story. So Kev, uh, plot number three, please. All right. Bedtime story has the doctor and Evelyn arrive at a house where Jacob and his new wife, Talia, with their new child, are being hosted by his mother, Mary. Mary, who's furious at Talia for marrying Jacob and birth their child because once a child is born, the child's grandparents of the family are instantly killed. This family curse has existed for centuries, and Mary is soon is proven right as she quickly sleeps, falls to death. Or is it death? The doctor soon determines that Mary is actually in a state of suspended animation, as are everyone else in the family who hasn't already died uh, from old age. And as he encourages people to go out and start digging up the graves, this is a very dark story, of the suspended families, members who haven't died yet, uh, he tries to unravel who could be doing this to the family. It turns out it is a shapeshifter taking the form of Evelyn, the whole story. And they are doing this because a member of the family spurned them uh, hundreds of years ago. And so they always appear at the birth of every new child to put the child's grandparents to sleep, as it were. So the doctor, uh, having unable to prevent Jacob's freezing, uh, instead takes Jacob, Mary, uh, Jacob's father, and the rest of the family on a sightseeing tour in order to make their last days memorable. Uh, unfortunately, he was not able to defeat the shapeshifter like he thought, leading to a very dark downer note to conclude the story. Yeah, I, I actually forgot about that ending um, until I re-listened. Yeah. Like I, Same it's here. Kind of, it is, it's super dark. It's like the Doctor and Evelyn achieved nothing. This will all happen again. <laughs> like... I have to say, I think this is my favorite of these uh, four stories. I, I like the first two stories are good, and it's the you know there's you know that unusual quality comedy for Big Finish and all the rest of it. But I really like the drama of this one, and I like the fact that it shies away from that kind of obvious, easy kind of uh, fake ending. You know that that everything is just too tidy. So when we do get that sting in the tail, when we do get that final revelation in the in the last seconds of the play, it, it's got a real wallop to it. It's got such a punch, um, and I really, I really admire the way that that, that comes off. It's a, a very difficult thing to to sort of be able to land, and I, I wouldn't necessarily have expected. Um, like, like I can see Rob Sherman doing that kind of darkness as we were just kind of discussing. Um, I don't know that Joseph Lister would have been my first choice to be able to kind of land that sort of story, but he does it with such sort of, again, breathtaking kind of confidence. Yeah, I really, really admire that ending. I, mean, I, I think the story feels a little bit like Master, his, uh, his, mm-hmm. his, his audio by that title. But yeah, that episode did not have nearly as dark of an ending. <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot like Rob Truman's This is his last story in the main range. And yeah, and, and, Jack Rayner would have one more main range story and a couple companion chronicles after this. But yeah, all three of our main writers are coming to the end of their sort of tenure with Big Finish. Yeah, I think it's, this is another great sort of capper to a career of sort of darker, more complicated stories that 
uh, really sort of pushed the limits of that in Doctor Who, like like master like terra firma. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I should note though, this is also Paul Cornell's last main range story. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's it's it, it's all four of them. You know, it's uh, Jack Rayner has one more, but yeah, they're they're all coming down to the end here. I the only reason I hadn't gotten to Cornell is because I hadn't pulled up his wiki page yet. Sure. <laughs> but we, we we've been doing this for two and a half years, and we've really nailed that level of professionalism. <laughs> I think everybody can agree. <laughs> but yeah, I. Like I said, I do think this is such a good control over tone. Like, I've talked before about how Lidstern stories like The Rapture, like Terra Firma, can get too dark and too, like, overwhelmingly sad. But this one really, I think, tweaks it just a bit. I think part of it being a short helps it a little bit. But also, I just think that it's very... It's because it's so simple in its darkness. It's not overreaching. And the implications of it are horrible, but it's in control of those horrible implications and not making you think about it too hard. Oh, no, that's definitely true. And I, I think the way that it's able to deliver that kind of final sting, so much about this, I realize that this is something we've actually talked about um, sort of a few times recently. So I'm, I'm hoping I'm not simply repeating myself by, by sort of mentioning this, but it's going back to that kind of fairy tale thing. Everything about this is structured exactly as a fairy tale would be. It's that kind of magical realism thing. And so when you get that kind of final uh, punch landing at the end, it is, it's the sting in the tail. It's the darkness. It's genuinely the heart of kind of like Grimm's fairy tales rather than the sort of disnified versions that we were more used to. And that's fantastic. That's such a, it's such a, it uses that sort of fairy tale structure so well because we don't get a vast amount of um, sci-fi explanation for what's going on here. Again, we only have half an hour. There's only a very limited amount of exposition you can get in on that. We get a little bit about, okay, well, it's an alien and blah, 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 but it's very kind of offhanded. It could just as easily be a witch from the Black Forest or, you know, whatever. And that that, that idea of possessing a family sort of through time and, uh, you know, when as soon as a son is born, uh, you know, a, a father will die. That's such a kind of fairy tale kind of thing. And so that ending feels very much that it's it's of a piece with that that kind of storytelling that mode of storytelling and so again it's that consistency of tone all the way through it which really kind of allows it to land that final moment yeah and i think it also helps that there's a like a little bit of soap opera dramatics to it all with like the reveal of talia saying oh the son isn't actually jacob's and then that was a lie but that sort of gets jacob in his shock that's what causes jacob to sort of drink the poison and do this sort of like sleepless stasis. Uh, I think that's, it's like fittingly tragic and dramatic in a way. And I'm glad that it does that. It feels like very of a piece with the tone. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. And then um, speaking of the fairy tale aspect of it, when they're all frozen or when, you know, Jacob and his mom and dad and everybody are all frozen, the doctor takes them in the TARDIS for a hundred years to show them the universe and then comes back right after they left and drops them off. That is such a perfect fairy tale thing. Like it feels like something Stephen Moffat would write, I think. Um, But like we've talked a lot about the darkness of this story. That is such a lovely, it's such a lovely way for the doctor to get them through this, this freezing this, you know, curse of the, of being frozen that he's just like flying them around the universe, pointing out, you know, things to their lifeless bodies 
that they can see and remember, you know, hopefully remember. It's it's just beautiful. And it to me that that lighter touch like kind of helps all the darkness go down more easily. Yeah, I really agree with that. And I think that, yeah, I think it really shows like the doctor is this very humanist person. This story is maybe more than even more than the other ones really about how the doctor is trying to ease as much suffering as possible and do what it takes. And that's just goes to show like how compassionate the doctor, even in the most prickly incarnation, how compassionate the doctor is. Yeah, for sure. And so can we, can we talk about Maggie stables in this? Sure. Yeah. For a minute. Cause, cause she gets to play the shapeshifter. She has a whole long speech about, about what the shapes, you know, being in this, how the shapeshifter was in love with the great, 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 great grandfather. And that when he found out who, what she was, he spurned her. And that's why she's doing all this. And the fact that they give evil in this speech, like, you know, the shapeshifter in Evelyn's form makes it land so much better. I think than if it was just a guest character monologuing at the doctor, like it's this voice that we know so well by this point, you know, and she just, she just, invests it with this like coldness but that makes it more emotional for the listener somehow because we're not used to evil and being this cold you know um it's it's one one of my favorite performances of hers ever in in the role you know the whole time the her whole run on on with big finish it's so impressive to me well, yeah, you won't. You definitely won't get any argument from me. I, I, I think one of the things that's most impressive about the way that Maggie Stables performs here, I, this is definitely her best, um, her best performance in in any of these four plays. And yeah, I agree, it's one of her her kind of best performances. But it's it's the fact that she changes so very slightly. This isn't a big kind of suddenly mustache twirling villain. It's not, <laughs> you know, she doesn't go full on Anthony Ainley or anything. You know, it's just she just shifts such a tiny amount, and it shows how how close those two things are. Um, I think that helps us by the idea that the Doctor was at least initially, you know, he says he was never taken in. Okay, it's the Doctor. He wouldn't admit it even if he had been. But, you know, the, it, it helps to sell that idea that uh, we as the audience were taken in because it's such a, a slight change. So even when the scales kind of fall from our eyes and we find out who this person really is, it's not this kind of like big over the top performance. It's the same kind of restrained. It's just got just that little touch extra. It's it, it, I completely agree. It's an absolutely lovely performance. Yeah, this whole box set is a great showcase for Maggie Stable. I think in all four stories, she really does some of her best work. And I mean, this is another like said, another great example of how wonderful she is in the Big Finish stories. And just another, like I said, that monologue is fantastic. But I think everything before that is also great. Like not another great moment is just like the doctor figuring it out and you have that sort of scales fall moment. That sort of turn great. is so simple, but so good. And also within the story, a great example of their friendship that the doctor would pick up on that. For sure. And remind me, this is after like the, the Evelyn kind of arc was over, right? Like we'd seen how she left the doctor and, and, and all that by now. Right. Yeah. We had, um, it was thicker than water. The one with, Sixth Doctor yes. and Mel meeting Evelyn later, and that sort of was the retcon conclusion to it. Yeah, so yeah, there's not many more Evelyn stories after this, and that's a uh, sad, <laughs> but I'm glad they used her for this box set for sure. 
Yeah, it well, and I think, yeah, and I guess we can talk about this in the wrap-up, but I feel like if you want it to be a celebration of Big Finish and what like what they brought to Doctor Who, I think it has to be this TARDIS team. You know, it's it's they're like as far as new companions and rehabilitating the doctor, this I mean, they're the best choice. <laughs> you know, they're 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 the greatest. Well, if we're talking about what Big Finish has contributed to Doctor Who why don't we move on to the hundred days of the doctor? <laughs> we have to get there oh, eventually. Oh man. Okay. Okay. Uh, take four, Kevin, over to you. All right. So the doctor is injected with a virus that me- that will slowly deteriorate his body over a hundred days, very painfully. And so he puts controls in the TARDIS. So he takes him back to various different adventures. He's had to try to find where the assassin has gone uh, Evelyn winds up narrating descriptions of many Doctor Who compa- characters Big Finish has made stories about, and then they find the assassin and get an antidote from him. I think that's enough. Ta-da! <laughs> More than enough. <laughs> yeah, this is this is easily the weakest story in the box set. I'm going to be very surprised if either of you disagree with that. Um, yeah, this is just um, this is just an advertisement, isn't it? This yeah. is just a, hey, we've got these. If you've enjoyed this, maybe you'll enjoy these other ranges as well. well Look, we've got the Fifth Doctor and the Seventh Doctor and the Eighth Doctor. Like, a, like us. But it, but it also assumes that you know who all these companions are, right? Like... They never, they, they don't identify like Aramem or Charlie or Lucy or whoever by name. It just like assumes that you are going to be like, oh, they're describing Lucy Miller. They're describing Aramem. Well, okay. I know who those characters are, but if I didn't like this, wouldn't, it would be nothing. I have to point out that Aramem does get a name shout out because the only because the sixth doctor knows who she is because of. Oh, oh, sure. I suppose so. Yeah. Progression of but time. Like Hex. But yeah. Yeah. Hex or whoever he doesn't know. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. All the other companions. The sixth doctor wouldn't know, so you can't say them my name. But then that makes it a very bad advertisement, doesn't it? Right. Well, and it's, it sure does. Well, and it's like one of those things where I think in prose this would probably be work fine, you know, if it's just the narrator like describing to us like this is who they saw here, this is what happened here, or whatever. But when it's just the two of them, when it's just the Doctor and Evelyn being like, oh, there I am in this incarnation, and who's that lovely young girl? You know? <laughs> like, it's it's nothing. What this, I think, badly needed, uh, well, I don't, I'm hesitant to say it needs to be longer, because I really didn't want any more of it, but it, it needs a little bit of space to let these interactions kind of breathe. And it's the one time where we would have really have benefited from an extended cast. I can't believe it would have been that difficult to get Paul McGann or Peter Davison who, or whoever to just record like a few lines or something, you know, at right. the end well, of a session. Right. And, and just because that at least would put a bit of meat in the bones. But yeah, you, you, I mean, you're quite right. It's just somebody describing a thing we can't see and have no particular reason to care about. Right, right. Like it's not... Um... I think, again, it, like you say, you know, maybe a longer version wouldn't be better. Uh, multi-doctor stories often don't work very well. But, like, if they're going to do this story, I think having the other actors pop in for br- very brief cameos would would be the way to go. Or, or, as we see here, they just shouldn't have done it, you know? Yeah, that works too. But... I don't know. It's just and and we should note. I mean, we we note mentioned earlier. This is by Paul Cornell, 
who, in my opinion, is one of the greatest Doctor Who writers of all time. I mean, you know, his some of his novels are wonderful. He wrote some great episodes for the TV show. You know, he's written good audios in the past. And this one is... I mean, it's the only sixth... Not one of them. It, it's, not, it's not one of them. It's the only sixth Doctor story he ever wrote. So maybe that has something to do with it. But it it doesn't feel like him hardly at all. I mean... There's like a little bit of his of his signature wit, you know, uh, towards the beginning when Evelyn says, Evelyn says that she wishes the doctor was different. And then he starts saying, I am different. There's no one else like me. She says, broadly speaking, that's the kind of thing I wish you were different than. <laughs> that and a, that's a good line. Yeah, like, yeah. I, like, I think the problem is he was told to write like a celebration of Big Finish. And he did. And that's all the story is. It's not anything more than that. Right. Yeah, it badly needs another idea to sort of try and animate it, to try and lift it out of this, you know, here am I pointing out a thing. <laughs> um, it, there's, yeah, but that's all it is. And, and, you know, it just like, like the closest it comes to kind of finding that, I guess is if, like, this is a, a super generous interpretation. So if you want to say this is garbage, please feel free. Um, but it, I guess it's trying to do a multi-doctor story that isn't just like your bog standard. The doctor meets up, doesn't get on with him or herself, and then we, uh, you know, but they manage to get over it at the end and, and defeat the bad guy. You know, it's not a, it's not a two doctors, it's not a five doctors, it's not a three doctors. It's it's trying to do a multi-doctor story that isn't just the same kind of template. Unfortunately, it hasn't replaced that template with anything remotely interesting. Right. So we're just, yeah, we're just, we're we're just, we're just stuck with Colin Baker pointing out that he thinks he's better than other doctors. Well, every doctor thinks he's better than other doctors. That doesn't get us anywhere. Right. Well, and especially because, like they they because it's the celebration of Big Finish, they limit it to five, six, four. I mean, six, but five, seven, and eight are the only ones that he sees. And, like, again, that would make sense if they were going to have Peter Davison and Sylvester McCoy and Paul McGann involved. But they're not. So there's no reason why... I mean, again, I don't want it to be longer, but it just seems very silly that he's like, I'm going to go watch all of my times that I've been here before. Oh, look, two-thirds of them are from after my time because those are the doctors who work here, right? Like... It would make so much more sense if it's, oh, there's my curly-headed guy. There's there's my, you know, there's me doing Venetian Akaido or, you know, whatever. Like, But they don't because they just want it to be the big Finnish doctors. So instead it's him being like, oh, Kara's seems fascinating. I've never traveled with a non-humanoid. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice, nice try, but that ship has sailed. Nobody is by <laughs> Right, right. And d- d- he, d- uh, spoiler, I guess Keres was just about gone, right? He was in like two stories after this? He's in one, the next one, and that's it. Oh, he, right. And that, right. That's yeah. right. And then Charlie uh, wraps up in the next one. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, he, he dies in literally the next story. Yeah. Huh. And then, um, uh, but in, and, and of course, saying that he's never had a non humanoid companion is serious chameleon erasure. So. I mean, whatever. K9 erasure if you want to go with that too. K9 too. Yeah, much more important. Yeah. And if you want, if you want to be uh, a little bit esoteric about it, Frobisher. 
Yeah. I mean, if, he, if, if he's traveled with a shape-shifting penguin, you know, yeah. frankly, Karis is nothing by comparison. Do we know if Frobisher is is before or after Evelyn? Like, do we do we have any any indication of what Ooh, the time is? Oh, that's a there? very good you know? question that we simply do not have time to get into right now. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest <laughs> that that Frobisher predates. Uh, we don't have time to go into it, so here's my detailed explanation. Um, I would I'd, since. Frobisher is contemporaneous with the Sixth Doctor on TV in terms of his first appearances in Doctor Who magazine comic strips. I suppose so, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that he's he's pre Evelyn, but if somebody wants to argue with with me about that, I'm I'm willing to I'm willing to argue the no, point. No, I mean well, Frobisher did hang out with Perry, so that sort of puts the nail yeah, on it. Yeah. Right, that's true. That's true. Yeah, and and in any of those Frobisher stories, the Doctor is much closer to his TV personality than he is here. You know, so. Yeah, you're right. Frobisher, his one of his best friends in this incarnation. So, get out of here with that Karis is important nonsense. <laughs> one last roll of the Karis dice, and it still comes up snake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, th- maybe this would have been more significant if it was the eighth Doctor going through this. Like, obviously, the decision to have it be the sixth Doctor in Evelyn is a much better one for the box overall. But for this specific story, I guess it would make more sense if it was the eighth, do- the most recent in sort of Big Finish chronology. But yeah, yeah, it's it's just misguided in so many ways. This story. I I, I guess like the one brief moment that sort of at least sidles up to the bar of drama, um, even if it doesn't quite manage to order a drink, is that um, is the moment where the Doctor finally meets the person that's infected him with this virus. And he kind of he has that whole thing about no, I didn't come here to stop you. I came here to kill you. You know, I'm, I came here to kill my executioner. Yeah. And just 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 for about seven seconds, you go, oh, right, because this is the sixth Doctor, and you know he's he's the most kind of violent in terms of on screen, and that's what the sixth Doctor is judged by, and in terms of his TV appearances. And even although the you know we have the the, the sort of softer side of the sixth Doctor and the more kind of um, so gentle and more traditional, if you like, uh, Sixth Doctor who travels with Evelyn. There's still that kind of spark of anger, that spark of violence. Uh, but no, it turns out that wasn't the case at all. It was just a bluff, and he's fine. So that's nice. <laughs> yeah, it's it's all a mess. It's just just everything about it. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, I can't think of anything to redeem this story, really, other than the fact well, well, that Colin Baker and Maggie Stables are good in it. Yeah, yeah they're good. Um, another thing that's bad about this story... There we go. All... <laughs> <laughs> well, but that we haven't really talked about yet is, is all of the, like, meta humor. Yes. About, about like, when uh, the audience thought this, oh, you have an audience doctor? Yes, the Time Lords watch me on a time-space visualizer or Oh, so clunky. <laughs> so bad. It's so bad. I'm just saying that's just like a real low point of the story, of a story with many bad points. I don't understand. Like you said, it's so clunky. It takes up so much time and for right, no right. Well, gain. And, and like we just heard the um, in My Own Private Wolfgang, you know, has those jokes about like knowing when to quit and th- th- there will always be fans or whatever, which is like not that different really thematically, but it makes sense in the context of the story so it's just kind of cute but there's no there's no story here for it to make sense in context of so i guess that's the difference yeah no i think that's i think that's entirely correct and and if you're going to like big finish does kind of meta humor a lot 
and it's very difficult to do well, and they very rarely do. Occasionally we get uh, my own private Wolfgang. Mostly we get this, and and that's you know it's it's very disappointing and like especially because I'm I'm assuming that this was meant to be kind of like a like a rousing finale um, to the whole box set. It, it's obviously not. I keep saying box set. It's not box set. This release. Um, it's obviously not that. But I suppose you know it, it's. Yeah, like it can't really land the meta version, and then when we're supposed to get to the kind of the like the rousing ending, it's it's not much of a surprising conclusion that when we get to the end of the play, you know, the message that we get is, you know, it turns out Doctor Who's great. <laughs> right. Wow. Whoever would have guessed it? And it's like fine. Look, I get it. It's a you know, it's 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 you know, it's a hundredth story. It's going to be a you know, a celebration. It's not like they could possibly come to any other kind of conclusion. But the way that the story kind of tries to sell it to us by this sort of this sort of process of accretion by visiting the different doctors and the different companions, and then finally, oh, it's almost dramatic. Uh, no, it's not. And then, oh yeah, it turns out Doctor Who's great. It's it's. It's almost patronising. It's a really, it's just weirdly misjudged, especially as you say for somebody like Paul Cornell. Yeah, well, and speaking of patronising, an- another another bad meta line is um, Evelyn's like, "Why are we just seeing? Why don't we see your first four incarnations <laughs> or whatever?" And uh, the Doctor says, "Well, there are good stories to tell about the rest of us too." Yeah, because three of them are dead and one of them's in the huff. (laughs) We know the reason. You don't really need to explain this to us. Right. Yuck. Um, Yes. I'm going to be like just a massive nitpicker for a second. But also, I mean, for a story that's irreverent of continuity, this has a sixth doctor meet Bernie Summerfield, uh, someone who the seventh doctor met for the first time. Right, well, and it... It, yeah. it also has him see Charlie, and you guys are just talking about the Condemned coming up, you said. Um, mm. The Sixth Doctor meets Charlie in that story definitely after this and doesn't recognize her. Yeah, that's true. And doesn't recognize her when the Eighth Doctor meets her. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I, Although that one was explained, at least. Oh, okay, you know? true. But um, but he doesn't recognize Ace or Hex, or I guess you could use anyone else right, then as a better yeah, example. That's, that's true, yeah. Yeah. Uh, at least, at least in the modern show, we have the fudge about memories not sticking when doctors meet. But there's no fudge back then, right? Well, and and he, he doesn't didn't they don't actually meet any of the doctors in this, right? They just, as far as I can tell, they just like watch them from afar. Yeah, gaze adoringly from the distance, <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, there I am doing a thing. I think there was a line about his memory not working as like this barest of like explanations for that. But that still doesn't explain, because the Bernie Summerfield meeting was an actual meeting that they're spying on. And so that's just egregious, even if you do have the little yeah. hand wave in there. Yeah, it's a, sure. it's a messy story. That's the conclusion I'm going to draw. It's, it's a fair conclusion to draw. All right, I yes. think we should talk about the box as a whole then. I know we were sort of hinting at it earlier, but I want to start by, I guess, going back to a point we had earlier about how this is all four writers. Um, this is most of their last stories and Jack Grinner would not be long for the big finish world. Well, I guess she would, but not for the main range. Also with all four writers, we have perfect attendance on all of them. I noticed. And I think that's significant, not just saying we have good taste, but also because they've all mostly had a good hit rate and contributed a lot of important things to sort of big finish as a company. So I think that just shows 
it was a good decision to hire these four writers, even if one of the stories did not quite work out. Um, the idea of hiring Paul Cornell is a good idea. And Lidster and Sherman and Rayner are all, like, these are good four writers to celebrate when you're celebrating 100 releases of Big Finish. Oh, yeah, no, 100%. I, I think it's very... I think it's a very interesting choice to have the 100th release be a sixth Doctor story. I mean, we've we've often talked about rehabilitation in the podcast, and there is, I mean, no no character in Doctor Who has been more rehabilitated by the existence of Big Finish than the sixth Doctor, and this is kind of like the the apotheosis of this. It, it you know the the sixth Doctor is the one that's being chosen to represent all of big finish and it and it's kind of you know celebratory bash there's there's like for all that i think the fourth story might have benefited from having like some cameos or whatever the fact that they aren't there does mean that the entirety of this story rests on on colin baker and and on the sixth doctor and that's such a a vote of confidence for his doctor and for everything that Big Finish have been able to do with his Doctor, that, that he's given that kind of, that moment of significance. Right. Well, and I, I think it's fascinating to compare this with the last, like, milestone story, which was Zagreus, of course, is the 50th. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. Um, but just the fact that with that one, they got, I mean, I, I think if, if Colin Baker is the most rehabilitated Doctor, then Paul McGann is definitely number two, right? So like, oh, for yeah. Sure, yeah. yeah, so like both of those stories, it's like, well, who are the, who are the big Finnish doctors? They pick one of them and they throw Paul McGann into this four hour, just supposed to be this like epic story. And it's like brings in every, like actually brings in almost every actor from Dr. Who, who had worked with big Finnish and, you know, tries to tell this, this huge story and it's a mess and everyone hates it. Right. Like. No, you will never find anyone who thinks the greatest is. I'm not sure Gary Russell thinks it's good at this point. <laughs> um, who who wrote it? But so here, fifty fifty stories later, they take the opposite approach. Four very short, mostly lighthearted stories, with you know the the other big Finnish doctor, Colin Baker, and just kind of like let him and and Maggie Stables do their thing, with you know small casts otherwise, and just half hour stories all around and it's so much better it was such a better decision uh, absolutely and i mean sorry to go back to 100 days of a doctor but i think this is the one meta moment that worked best in the story was a sixth doctor saying uh he thought it would be a short incarnation but it turns out he had more time and i just think that works because i mean it's always talking about the sixth doctor on tv was only two short seasons and then big finish sort of gave him more time to sort of be himself and I think that actually does sort of resonate. It's in the moment of the story, it's just overly clever. But it's just nice to think about how Colin Big got a chance to sort of play this new lease on the character that's not fundamentally changed, but tweaked in a way that now a lot of people love him instead of yeah. hating him, which is such a nice thing. For those of us who are still who are old enough to be, uh, you know, vividly scarred by the memory of those two <laughs> Colin Baker, like, I always, I always loved Colin Baker on screen. But you know, there was a certain point where it became incredibly difficult to kind of defend some of the material that he was being given. Uh, right. and, but and, I always, I always loved him as the Doctor. And when you say a certain point, that point is, of course, the twin dilemma, 
Like, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, basically, from the word go. Um, but I always thought it was so clear that uh, that he had the right kind of qualities and the right ability um, to really deliver in the role. So it, it, it does, it just purely personally, it feels kind of very, you know, I feel vindicated. It, it, it feels like it's it's the right thing. And, and so to have him be kind of, yeah, the, the sort of the valedictorian of the range at this point is, is such a... It, it, it just it proves that he was always right for the role and I'm always deeply suspicious when somebody goes ah this proves something okay let's say it demonstrates it but it definitely <laughs> does and the fact that he's the fact, I'm just talking to myself at this stage so don't worry I'll stop in a minute um, but the, also the fact that he's got um, Evelyn on side as well uh, a purely big Finnish character which is, again feels correct rather than trying to shoehorn in you know everybody and their granny just because they've once had one and a half lines in a doctor who story back in 1974 or something you know what we actually get is one doctor one companion it's a big finnish companion and they're allowed to carry the weight of the range and that just feels so much like the right choice yeah absolutely yeah i definitely agree i think it's so just correct to pick this doctor this companion arguably the two biggest success stories of Big Finish and then pick four of their best writers, at least, or at least most distinctive, even if you don't like them. And yeah, I think overall, it's just a good decision. I mean, we got three great stories out of it. And for all our gripes, 100 Days of the Doctor, uh, that's three out of four is a pretty good hit rate, I feel. And those three are so lovely and do such a good job of highlighting why these two characters have worked so well. Yeah, well, that, that sounds like an absolutely perfect wrap-up for, for this week's story. Um, fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, Kev, uh, would you care to uh, tell people how they can get in touch with us? Sure. You can email us at TalkingWhoToYou at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at TalkingWhoToYou. I am on Twitter at Kev Kozer. That is K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R. And you can find more of JG's writings at www.jgmcquarrie.scott. That is J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E dot Scott. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and whatever podcast you're using to help other people find it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And Anthony, thank you very much for joining us as well. Do you have any pluggables that you would like to plug? Sure. Um, you can you can follow me on Twitter at Zeppo Marxist, and you can um, read my writings on toughpigs.com. I write about the Muppets a lot over there. We're doing a bunch of reviews of weird old Sesame Street episodes right now. Check that out if that's interesting to you. And uh, we have a podcast uh, called Moving Right Along, where we're going through the Muppet movies two minutes at a time. And we just finished up The Great Muppet Keeper. So listen to that if you're a Muppet fan, in addition to a Doctor Who fan. Phenomenal. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining us again. Well, I think we can probably leave it there for 100. Next week, we are going to be condemned. And that means that we are going to be revisiting The Sixth Doctor, but this time with Charlie. So... It's going to be an interesting one, and as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking.